This is the first Sunday of Advent. It is the beginning of the church year, so we welcome the church year in. So in my sermon today, I want to speak, uh, give you Father Brewer's breathless tour of the liturgical year and its origins, and to say something then about uh, what the major themes of Advent are going to be, and then focus them more particularly on the three readings we heard today from Jeremiah, unusually upbeat for Jeremiah, uh, from 1 Thessalonians, the earliest piece of literature in the New Testament, and finally from Luke's Gospel, his version of the, the great apocalypse, and how we understand some things about interpreting this in all of the three synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. So as I've said before, uh, the Green Sundays are about discipleship, the cost, the ways and the means, the how-to, and now we begin the Christian year which talks about the life of Jesus. So we follow now in the liturgical year through uh, this process, and Advent begins it as we lead up to his birth. In the origin of the liturgical year, here's how it happened. The first post of the liturgical year was Easter and the great 50 days. The second post was the celebration of the birth of the Savior. Next, we have preparatory seasons that develop prior to Easter, which we call Lent, and prior to Advent, prior to Christmas, which we call Advent. We know about this Advent because, you know me, I love this kind of stuff. <clears throat> uh, we have a piece, we have a, something called the Gelasian Sacramentary. I love that, the Gelasian Sacramentary. It dates from the 6th century, the 500s. And it's, a, it's sort of an altar book for the presider, but in it is all of the material for Advent. It is the first place that we see it uh, in a complete whole for the season of Advent. There are lots of other things in the Gelasian Sacramentary. There's also something called the Gubbio Missal. I like it because the name Gubbio always seems to be interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a great place to visit. Gubbio. So we have the season of Advent, and then we have all of the seasons that come after the season, the mini season after Christmas, and then we have Lent, and then we have Easter, and then we go for the great 50 days to Pentecost, and then we have all the long period, about half of the year, in what we call ordinary time. So we're beginning now the season of Advent. Uh, there's a very famous liturgical scholar. He was a Benedictine monk. His name was Aidan Cavanaugh. And he wrote a lot of books about the liturgy. And here's what he said about this. I'm, I'm going to read this to you because I forgot to mention that the great book on the shape of the liturgy that Anglican Christians read for so many years, The Shape of the Liturgy by Don Gregory Dix, he talks at some length in this book about something called 
the sanctification of time. And so, Father Kavanaugh is talking about this in an important way. Once in touch with time, as marking the unstoppable unfolding of divine purpose, it is a time that we recall as Episcopalians who worship according to a liturgical calendar year in, in year in and year out, that time is important and that the liturgy is the way through which one is able to perceive its true purpose, time. One is able to perceive its true nature, not to be an endless succession of bare moments, but a purposeful thrust home towards its holy source. And you know, once you spend some time, I found this when I became an Episcopalian with a liturgical year, you begin to sort of feel the, 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 what the seasons give you and tell you spiritually. And that's an important thing. Because you've heard people, we all get up and say, oh, well, another day, right? And so in liturgical terms, uh, Christian people don't say necessarily, they say that, but they also say, there is somehow a purpose here that I'm going to be part of. And the themes of the great season gives a, give us the ways and the means to be able to do that. How we understand what it means to uh, live in the sanctification of time and its purpose. And living by intention, which is a good thing. So the three, here are some of the themes of the Advent season that I think are important and that are part of the way in which we, we do this. The first one is repentance. Uh, let me stand back. For, when I was in seminary, we were in the middle of the renewal of the liturgy in the Christian church. And when Advent was celebrated at the Shota House in the early 1970s, you could not tell the difference between what we did in Advent and what we did in Lent. Right? So the same austerities in, were in Advent as they were in Lent, about no meat on Wednesdays and Fridays, and we had other uh, more austere penitential things that we did. And in the origin of the season... In Northern Europe, Advent was six weeks long. It began after the feast of, on the Feast of St. Martin of Tours. In fact, it was called St. Martin's Lent. And in the, more Mediter in the Mediterranean countries that are more relaxed, the celebration of Advent was four weeks. And so we did this. We merged them as the Gelasian Sacramentary was coming together and after that during the time of Charlemagne so that we lightened it slightly in terms of its length but kept a lot of the penitential overtones. Now my personal feeling is, and I hope I don't sound like a curmudgeon, is we may have overdone it in the renewal, right? It's nice to be joyful but it's also important that this season is fraught with some anticipation and expectation and a little anxiety. And if we think about the wider culture that we're in, this is the time of year when people get ready to make New Year's resolutions. So they have to do some thinking about what's happened in the past year. So I'll just give this away because when the New Year hits, I won't be here. 
But don't make too many New Year's resolutions. It's never a good plan. Right? Because none of us can keep all of the resolutions that we make. We can make progress, but we can't achieve perfection. So anyway, one of the highlights of the Advent season is repentance, looking at your life in a new way, turning around and looking at the ordinary and commonplace that we do on a regular basis and see how you're doing with regard to what might uh, be able to help you be a better transparency and reflection of God's grace and love. Hope. Hope is understood in one sense. Somebody told me a long time ago, honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. That it's a way of understanding hope. The Christian hope is, is characterized this way in the catechism. What is the Christian hope? I love this because you have a question and then an answer. And you discover when you hear the question and then the answer, you say, well, surely it's more complicated than that. And it is. But it's a good way to sort of center yourself. What is the Christian hope? The Christian hope is to live with confidence in newness and fullness of life and to await the coming of Christ in glory and the completion of God's purpose in the world, which is an affirmation of our role, that that God needs us to do this. So hope is an important thing. Expectation. Expectation probably in this culture may have to do with some people, what am I going to get for Christmas? Or what kind of parties am I going to give or or go to? But expectation in the sense of Advent means uh, the learning to use the full force of your imaginative powers on what might be. And since we live in the Silicon Valley, the great place of innovation and entrepreneurial zeal and all of those things, It is fair to say, excuse me, my voice is going on me. It is fair to say that some of the people who've been the most successful and the most innovative have had the best imaginations, have been able to use their imagination to its fullest extent. So it's important to see uh, how imagination plays a role in our spiritual development. And finally, joyfulness, which... um, You know, we used to have stuff in, let's put the joy back in Advent. Oh, gee. I've come to say, no, not so much. However, Christians are called to be joyful. And what joy means in the Christian sense is the sure and steady knowledge that the conundrums and the ambiguities of life are going to come into surer focus and clearer focus for us. And since we're a liturgical church and a church that believes that you find the ways and the means spiritually to put things in your hands, the more you cooperate with this, the easier it becomes. Sometimes you begin to see spiritual progress, not in dramatic terms, but looking back that the problems that you have now seem to be slightly more manageable than they were before. Right? They don't go away. They're still there, but somehow you're a little less anxious than you were. And that's a good thing.
and that's something that I believe understanding the sanctification of time uh, helps. So let's talk about the readings. Jeremiah is uncharacteristically upbeat. If you want to get the blues, read the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And yet when you do, you begin to see some real things about the great narrative. This narrative is what early Christian people, and certainly the Jews in the time of Jesus, looked back on and said, here are where the promises are. And we now believe that they're located in the teaching and life of Jesus Christ. We believe that. So what is Jeremiah talking about today? He's talking about a hopeful message that the halcyon days, the great days of Israel are going to return or come back. And in the midst of exile and restoration and all of the difficulties that he has lived through, he believes and is saying as a prophet that we're going to see the restoration of the great days, which were the days of King David and King Solomon. And some of the early followers of Jesus are going to look at his preaching and teaching and say, while this may not appear to be so, we are seeing here now this recapitulated for us in our midst. And that we're going to be part of the great days. What's the difference? The difference is that now we will come clear on the idea that God's saving embrace is for everyone. That this offer, that this knowledge of God's unconditional love, forgiveness, and acceptance is for all people, not just people of the covenant. And the people of the covenant are not superior. They have been vested with great responsibilities. And their responsibilities are to make this message known that the great days are coming back. Now, you and I uh, need to see this uh, in the long term, and maybe when we get to Luke's gospel today, we'll see what that might mean. In the meantime, 1 Thessalonians, I would guess it was written probably around 48, 49 A.D. And in it, Paul is talking to the Thessalonian congregation today Uh, about maintaining habits of being and relating that produce health within their community and serve as an element of attraction. You know, it's fair to say that you could understand Christianity. Episcopalians aren't very enthusiastic about evangelism, right? Because it ha- evangelism has been tarred with a, a brush that's rather unattractive in many ways. And one of the ways you might be able to think about Christianity, and ha- people have done this, as a program of attraction rather than promotion. You know, it's a, great, it's a great honor if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I've been watching you and seeing you, how you behave in life, and the things you do, and I'd like you to—I'd like to speak with you about how I get what you have. Now, this happens in big and small ways. Sometimes it's the result of the practical wisdom we've acquired in our particular area of expertise and understanding. And you want to talk to somebody about how that is, so that you can acquire that practical wisdom. Is the how-to. 
but it can also be understood as the accumulated response to adversity. What have you learned, you know? And have you ever seen anybody who seems to have marched from one horror to the next? And somehow in the midst of all this, they've been able to maintain some species of serenity and still some willingness to extend, even in what we might say a limited way. But they have been able to figure out how now I can be available and, and uh, be generous with what it is I have to share. And Paul is really talking about that. And he's also talking about <clears throat> the community which is fraught. You know, I've said this before. Whenever ever anybody starts talking about, we have a great parish family. This is a great parish family. Well, what is your family like? Does your family always get along? Because well, most of the time when people say that, they think it's a location of great harmony and comedy. Right? Families don't agree with one another. Families are fraught with difficulty and tension. It's one thing to say this is a family because of the positive values that it, ex that it exudes in some way. But it's quite another one to say that we have an overweening idealism about what it is that family means. So Paul is talking to the, the Thessalonians about you know, acquiring good habits. I looked this word up in the dictionary. You may know this. Habitus is the Latin word for habit, and it means a dwelling place. So when you say that you wish to develop habits, it's a place where you dwell. Robert Bella, who is a famous sociologist, he died a few years ago, and an Episcopalian. He lived in Berkeley, taught at Cal. And he wrote a book, with some, a great book, some years ago in the 80s called Habits of the Heart, the dwelling place that people cultivate. And I think the church needs to connect itself. It is. It's already doing this with all of the locations in the world and in the wider culture that are cultivating those habits of the heart. People who are, I'm always impressed and awed by how many of you are involved in things outside church which are transformative in nature and which uh, you have and you have cultivated the habit of being part of those communities that are intentional and making a difference it's a good thing and in an oblique sense maybe Paul is speaking about that in Luke's gospel once more we have one of these apocalyptic statements and here's the thing that I want to emphasize if you were to read in Mark the little apocalypse and in Matthew and then in Luke you'll see that they're not all the same and it's important for us to understand that as these gospel writers wrote their gospel in this case they had many of the same sources to put it together but they also added special material of their own because they were faced with a situation on the ground that was different than, say, Matthew, or different than, say, Mark, and that's true with Luke. And here's what Luke believed and was teaching in his gospel and in volume two, the book of Acts, and that is that it is part of the plan of God that the church come into being. And that it is understood as the, as the location 
for where we see now the modeling of what it means to be the best human being that you can be. It's the place where we see the ways and the means that we can put into our hands uh, the power of God's work in the world. It is the place where we are the fiduciaries and the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, and also by virtue of that to, to extend and to make this spirit available to other people. And volume two of Luke's gospel is the book of Acts, where that is a, a rehearsal of how that happened, or how the early Christians understood what that meant. So Luke really does understand history as not a succession of bare, moment, bare moments, but as the history of salvation. So it's, it's one thing if you were to decide, say today, I'm going to see if everything that I do is something that is part of what God's plan is, or how do I fit in? Or how do I respond by asking God to show me what that is? When I was a candidate for the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, the final interview that I had was by 22 members of the search committee. I had to be carried out on a stretcher, <laughs> which was two and a half hours long. And one of the people on the search committee who, uh, this was just an introduction. I should have realized at the beginning what this was going to bode for me and my future as the rector. He said to me, do you believe in the efficacy of supplicatory prayer? Now, my first instinct was to do what my grandfather used to say, was to put two lips together and make a big sound like a raspberry. <laughs> what he meant was do you ever intercede to God for your own needs or for the needs of other people do you ever practice intercessory prayer and I've gone up and down on this in my ministry and in my own spiritual life about thinking whether that had any value or utility at all And I realize now it has a huge amount of utility and value, and it's important for us on a daily basis to do that, to ask God to help us, and to ask God to help other people who are in need that we know about, right? And to hold each other in prayer and in uh, the knowledge of God's presence to them. And I think Luke understood this in a deep way as well. Henry Chadwick, I was going to read the quote and I forgot to bring the book in. He speaks in a wonderful essay that he wrote many years ago. He was the, uh, a famous historian of the early church. He was the dean of Christ Church uh, Cathedral in Oxford for a long time. And he was from Cambridge and his brother Owen was a great expert on the Victorian church and on that particular period. But he speaks in this about the Advent season in one sense. He doesn't mention Advent at all, but he speaks about uh, all of the things that I've mentioned that are themes of the season, about the early church and how that was characterized so that we review ourselves not to be so hopeless 
as without the ability to understand God's, our desire to do things for God, but for God also to be a participant, and that the way that you and I access that on a weekly basis are through what he calls the deep therapy of the sacraments. It's a great phrase. The deep therapy, you know. And so Advent, the introduction to the Christian year, is a time when we think about how that is important. So this week, the first week of Advent, see how you might be an instrument of fostering honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm in all that you do. And uh, when you do that, you'll know something about what it says in the catechism about the assurance. There's a question in the catechism. What then is our assurance as Christians? Our assurance as Christians is that nothing, not even death, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.